fairly regular basis on statutesandstories.com, which is a history blog, which uses primary sources to teach American history. And um, I did not plan with you guys in advance. That uh, It just so turns out that uh, this past week I posted on Washington's farewell address. So um, it, it goes in nicely, by the way, with your having coincidentally seen the Hamilton musical. So I'm going to ask you, what was one of your favorite songs from Hamilton? Go ahead. And my favorite was the uh, the room. How was the room where it all happened? Is that the right name of the song? The room where it happened. So yeah, the room where it happened. I had it right. You got it right. The room where it happens, which is referring to the room where Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton have their discussions about the compromise to pay off the debt, and we talked about that, I think, at a prior prior evening. Yep. But the, the room where it happens excludes Burr, and that gets to some of the reasons why there's later friction between Hamilton and Burr. But the room where it happens ultimately decides that the capital which started in New York moves to Philadelphia temporarily, and then from Philadelphia ultimately to Washington, D.C., which is just a swamp at the time. But but what I wanted to point out to you is that uh, I've got some friends of the Statutes and, family, Statutes and Stories family who are listening. In fact, I know there's a listener right now from Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, this may be one of the first times that uh, some of these uh, individuals who have a wide range of views are going to be listening to uh, public radio in South Florida, public access radio in South Florida. Great. Thank you. They're welcome. Absolutely, and this is all about sharing opinions and sharing ideas, which is my opportunity then to say that uh, I neither endorse nor necessarily agree, or I should say Statutes and Stories doesn't endorse or necessarily agree with all the strong opinions on your show, but uh, that's what makes America great. Absolutely, and being from uh, from Massachusetts, I trust that they're all Minutemen and they're all armed. <laughs> they are very courageous, and uh, and some of them are quite uh, artistic. In fact, uh, when you come to the Statutes and Stories exhibit, yep. which is going to be at NOVA on March 17th for almost a month, from March 17th through April 15th, we're going to have people from around the country with some compelling exhibits that relate to the Founding Fathers and the Founding Generation. So uh, wait until you see what we're going to have uh, in store all right, so, NOVA so, next, uh, next month. I'm sorry, oh, not next month, in April and in March. Okay, so when you say Nova, you mean Nova uh, University where? In Fort Lauderdale? That's right. So Nova University has the Alfred Sherman Library, which is a beautiful, I think it's an eight, nine-story building, which is a library, but it also has a art museum, which is the, and I am horrible pronouncing Spanish, as you know, the Cortilla Gallery. So you okay. Out. okay. So the Cortilla Gallery is a beautiful exhibit space, and they're allowing statutes and stories to come in, and we can talk about this at a future at a future time. No, but let and people in know. To statutes and stories and the collection that we have, we're also going to be having artifacts from the Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society. We're going to have art, and let me mention to you, the, have any of you been, did I mention before, the, the Union Oyster House? It's called the Ye Old Union Oyster House in Boston. It's on the Freedom Trail. Have I ever mentioned that before? No. I've been yeah, to... So, long story short, and we're now off the subject. No, no. Uh, and again, this is on the Freedom Trail. This is the heart of where the Minutemen were fighting, and it's uh, all of the history of Boston. So that restaurant, which is the oldest restaurant in the country, had artwork that was commissioned by um, by that restaurant. And some people say that the oldest restaurant is in New York, and that's France's Tavern. Yes. We could talk about France's Tavern one day. But uh, the Union Oyster House is, is widely recognized as the location where the Sons of Liberty met in Boston. So, uh, 
about, uh, actually, we could go back to the last century. So back in the 1990s, they commissioned a friend of mine who's an artist, David Wells Roth. Mm -hmm. Feel free to go to his website, davidwellsroth.com. Okay. And uh, David did the artwork for the Sons of Liberty and Boston Revolutionary Orchestra. So David has agreed to come down to Florida for right. the Alexander Hamilton Statutes and Stories exhibit at NOVA in March. And he's going to be displaying his unique revolutionary period art uh, on the walls, which are also at the Union Oyster House, the oldest restaurant in the country. So long story short, it's going to be a phenomenal exhibit, but that's not why I'm here tonight. The reason I'm here tonight is to talk about Washington's farewell address. Okay. Written by Hamilton. There you go. And here's another interesting coincidence. So the, the music that we were listening to while we were waiting for, you know, you know to move from one hour to the next, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was Hart, correct? Yep, yep, yep. File that away, because I like to ask you guys some historical questions, some historical trivia. So file away the name Hart. Uh, so as we go through our discussion today, uh, just make a mental note of it. Purple Hart. You are absolutely correct that the State of the Union address, I'm sorry, State of the Union, the Washington's Farewell Address was a collaboration between George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, which is why we want to link it to the, the Lin-Manuel uh, musical. And uh, one of my favorite songs, not my most favorite, but one of my favorite songs is called, and let me make sure I refer to it correctly, One Last Time, and it's a beautiful melody with Christopher Jackson singing along with Lin-Manuel, One Last Time, meaning that Washington's going to have one last time to share and to teach what he's learned over a 50, almost a 50-year career as a patriot and founding father, the founder, the, the father of our country. So uh, that's, that song from the musical is his opportunity to uh, get out that message, and for many years, the, the Washington Farewell address, um, you know, was, was one of the most widely published, one of the most kids used to memorize it in school. In fact, the Senate every year on Washington's birthday, I'm pretty sure they still read, they alternate, one year Democrat, one year Republican. They take turns reading the farewell address. And each generation has different insights they can draw from Washington and Hamilton's collective wisdom. I remember one thing from that speech. Avoid foreign entanglements. Interesting you say that, and that is the concept that he has of, uh, remember this is in 1796, when right. Washington decides to not do a third term, yep. and uh, most listeners know that Washington started that precedent, uh, and we could talk about that there were some founding fathers and mothers that wanted uh, Washington to have king-like powers, yep. and he decided, no, I'm doing two terms and I'm stepping down. So that phraseology is what a lot of people know the farewell address for, but that exact set of, set of words, uh, entangling, entangling alliances, actually comes from Jefferson describing uh, the farewell address. But mm -hmm. Washington doesn't actually say that. He has that concept in there of neutrality. Yep. And um, I could quote some of it to you. But yep. uh, the point is that uh, the environment was 1796. Britain and France are starting to go at it. It looks like there's going to yep. be war in Europe. Washington does not want us to get entangled. So he doesn't use that word entangled, but he does not want us, uh, he's interested in neutrality at this point because he's worried that uh, you know, we have to pay off the debt. We have to get our act together. And he wanted us to be stronger, and he was right. When we went up fighting the British, this is in 1812, we were ready. Actually, uh, we could argue about how ready we were. Well, but uh, through his wisdom, Hamilton and others, Bal we did not take sides. The city of Baltimore was ready. With uh, Britain and France. The city of Baltimore was ready, and New Orleans became ready, but the city of Washington was overrun and burnt. That's right. The White House was burnt. Uh, under uh, the, the War of 1812. Yep. 
So I've got some trivia for you relating to this time frame. So uh, the address, when Washington writes it, and he co-writes it with Hamilton, in fact, a lot of the historians all agree that it was truly a collaborative effort, meaning that Washington had the ideas, and Hamilton was the one that put those ideas to pen. He put pen to paper. But uh, the question that Washington had to decide is, where is what is he going to do with this address? He wants to share it. He wants it to be widely distributed. So a question is coming. So he, uh, he reaches out to Hamilton. He says, uh, Alexander, where should we have it published? And Alexander's answer was Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. That was the paper. At the time, it was Philadelphia's largest newspaper, Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. So here's my question for you. What happened to Claypool's American Daily Advertiser, and what do you think it is today? And remember, this is Philadelphia, which was temporarily the capital. It's the Philly Inquirer. You got it. Excellent. Did you know that, or you figured it out? Well, I figured it out from the name. And that's exactly right. So we put our two cents together. So that newspaper um, got some of its prominence because it was the first to publish the, the Farewell Address. Uh, but it didn't give the name Farewell Address. It turns out that there was a small newspaper, the Courier of New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and uh, different newspapers had to decide how they wanted to label this address because he doesn't have a title on it. When you look at the address itself, it starts off, and I'm going to quote you, as an open letter to the people of the United States. And it goes on to say, uh, to my friends, dear friends and fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. So Washington did it as a letter, and Hamilton wrote it as a letter, so the newspapers have to decide how they want to describe it and then queue it up, if you will, in their newspapers. And it was this little newspaper in New Hampshire, the Courier of New Hampshire, which referred to it with the title that we know it today, which is what Washington's farewell address. Let me give you some other examples. So uh, there, here's an example of a paper that uh, titled it The Disinterested... No, no, let me get the, the quote correctly. Um, yeah, the disinterested warnings of a parting friend, and uh, other newspapers called it the legacy of uh, of his country, giving his legacy. So there are all different names that the newspapers came up with, but the one that stuck was Washington's farewell address. So here's another question for you. Why is it a misnomer to call it an address? Because he didn't deliver it, right? That's right. So Washington never delivered it as a speech per se. It was this open letter that was published all around the country by the different newspapers. And uh, one yep. part of the story, which I think is really interesting, we can get into the content. But um, so he reaches out to, this is Washington, reaches out to the publisher, and uh, they sit down together. Washington explains what he's going to be doing, that he's going to be sharing his wisdom. And uh, you know, the publisher, of course, is willing to have this scoop. Right. And uh, after Washington gives the draft, which was handwritten by Washington, so Hamilton worked very closely with Washington, going through multiple drafts, and there's more mm-hmm. backstory we can talk about, but ultimately Washington had the final approval. He writes it out by hand using the, the draft that Hamilton had worked on with him over many months. And the publisher asked Washington, do you mind if I keep this copy, which the publisher uses to publish it? Mm-hmm. And Washington agrees. So could you imagine having the first president uh, you know, give you his personal handwritten <laughs> copy of the farewell address? Well, that's pretty interesting. But, you know, the uh, the State of the Union did not become an address until the early 1900s, I'm pretty sure. I think it might have been Woodrow Wilson. Uh, so the, the idea of going before Congress and giving a speech is pretty, uh, pretty un, you know, it's not something that was done for the first hundred years. 
So I have not researched that, but if memory serves from the last time I looked at that part of the Constitution, and people know Article 1 is the legislature, Article 2 is the executive, Article 3 we know is the legislative, I'm sorry, is the judicial, rather, Article yep. 1 executive, Article 2, the, sorry, I just messed up, Article 1 is the is the legislative, that's Congress, Article 2 is the president. So when the last time I looked at the Article 2, the president's power, one of the obligations he has, and really one right. of the few obligations he has, is to give a, an address to Congress, but it doesn't say, as you're pointing out that he has to actually present it orally, so it was given in writing is the way that Washington would do it, I believe, is he would submit it in writing to Congress. Right. That was done for for a hundred years after that, and I think it was only in the early 1900s that uh, I think Wilson may have been the first to actually start delivering it as an annual address to Congress. I will have to look into that, and yep. I think you're right. All right, let's check it out. It's interesting because um, it, I, as at the University of Chicago... Uh, as an alum, I'm keeping track of the Obama Presidential Center, and it turns out that it's not going to be a library. Uh, there's not going to be any books or papers there. They're all being kept by the National Archives. So it, we've come a long way from the president handing over his draft to now presidents guarding all their all their uh, papers and addresses. So there we are. I'm going to point out to you just as a you know, amateur historian that increasingly a lot of the work that's done today is all electronic. Right. And, uh, you know, the good news is when you're researching history, it is very easy. And that's one of the things that I do on the website, statutesandstories.com, is I put links where people can use you know, Hamilton's papers and Washington's papers. And yep. uh, one of the websites that I routinely use is called foundersarchive.com, and that's through the National Archives. Mm -hmm. And I'll point out to you that if you go to that website today, it has the warning that there's a government shutdown. But there's all kinds of wonderful, terrific material that you can get your hands dirty and look at yourself, Good. Uh, including you know, pictures of these historic documents and, and reading through the text of these documents if you really want to get into the weeds. Right. Good. Good. Let me give you some more uh, background about the, the, uh, the Washington's farewell address. So I, I mentioned to you earlier that it was Hamilton and Washington working together, and that's true. But a lot of people don't realize Washington initially was only going to do one term. And uh, when he was convinced by his cabinet unanimously, they all agreed that, George, you can't resign right now. We need you for a second term. So he agreed to stay. But he had started working on a draft with Madison, who was at the time a very close advisor. Right. And remember, and you'll know this from the musical, that Hamilton and Jefferson uh, have uh, diverging views. So mm -hmm. Washington doesn't reach out to Hamilton, although he was very close to Hamilton for the first draft. And if we go back four years, instead of 1796, this would have been 1792, when he was initially thinking about stepping down after one term. So he did the first draft with Madison. So four years later, when he's now thinking about resigning in February of 1796, uh, at the end of his second term, the term would be over towards the end of the year, but he's uh, thinking about resigning in February, and he tells Alexander, I need your help. I want you to look at the draft that I had done four years ago with Madison. And that's the draft we know today that was worked on, as we said, over that summer. And uh, there, if you go to statutesandstories.com, you'll be able to see you know, the handwritten versions, Madison's version and uh, Hamilton's version and Washington's version. And it is really, and I'll, I'll give you some quotes from historians who describe it as a, as a true, I've said it before, a collaborative effort where the two of them, Hamilton and Washington, build upon Madison's earlier version, and uh, they, they turn it into a masterpiece that has stood the test of time. In fact, I'll give you a quote by John Marshall, who was the uh, the first Supreme Court Justice. So here's a quote. He observed that the address spoke to precepts to which American statesmen's 
but statesmen cannot too frequently recur. So here we have Marshall saying that the statesmen need to be looking at this. And here's an interesting bit of irony, that when Jefferson establishes the University of Virginia, which I believe was one of the first public universities in the country, yep. Virginia, which at the time was the largest state, uh, he wound up becoming the president, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, the University of Virginia. And they set up all kinds of classes. And he was asked by some of the professors, what are the materials that we should be teaching in the first political science class at the University of Virginia? And this is in the early 1800s, 1810s, 1820s. And uh, the answer that both Madison and Jefferson recommended was the farewell address as one of the centerpieces of that course in, in American politics and American history. Good, very appropriate, because if you look at some of these names, John Marshall, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, they were all considered Federalists in the, as the party system started developing. And on the other hand, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe were considered Democrat Republican. So there was a lot of animosity in the election of 1800, which maybe you should cover one of these days, uh, really pit both sides against each other. But I guess it's good to know that both sides agreed that George Washington had done a good job in his farewell address. That is a perfect segue for my next histor history trivia question for you. So, uh, and we set this up earlier at the beginning of the, of the hour. So, Washington was known after he passed away as uh, there are lots of famous quotes about Washington. So here I'm going to ask you, uh, the quote was by uh, famous General Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee, okay. related to another Lee we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. but the General Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee does the eulogy for Washington, and he calls him first in war, first in peace. You want to complete the sentence? First in the hearts of his countrymen. Bingo. So that yeah. was part of the eulogy for Washington. And uh, I'll also point out to you that Washington was routinely toasted while he was alive as the man who unites all hearts. That's a quote. Yep. So, you know, people during his presidency would toast him as the, I'll read it again, the man who unites all hearts. So I'm, uh, I'm smiling and chuckling. Who could we point to today as the man or woman that unites all hearts? Oh, I don't know. But I'll tell you a third thing. Um, General Washington set up the Order of the Purple Heart for uh, military officers and, and soldiers who had been injured. So the, the, um, the Purple Heart, which you get if you're wounded in battle, is an order. It goes back to George Washington and the Continental Army. The Purple you're Heart. Giving, you're educating me, and this is a process where okay. we learn together, but I did not know that. Yeah, military history. There's a lot that we owe to Washington, and he is truly, there, there are good reasons why he's on Mount Rushmore. With yeah. Jefferson, by the way. Well, the, the the reason there's really nobody uniting us today in the, the way that George Washington did. And I think um, Abraham Lincoln put his finger on it in his second inaugural address. In 1865, he said, despite the Civil War, we both read the same Bible. We both pray to the same God. Although he took a he poked uh, at the slaveholders and said, I don't see how you can ask a just God to help you to wring your bread from the sweat of another man's brow. That was his uh, complaint against slavery. It's theft. And I think today we don't have that commonality of, of background, of you know, people reading the same Bible, uh, praying to the same God. And that's why you don't have uh, somebody who can unite our hearts. It's very rare. Uh, used to be able to do it in sports, but even that has become politicized. Um, I think supporting the troops is something that generally people can get to, around. But, you know, we, we're, it, the country is divided, and we can't— uh, we can't, uh, you know, just uh, ignore it. I was going to 
point out to you, you know, who else? We, we could joke all day long about the unites all hearts in America. Uh, people have suggested to me maybe it's Brad Pitt or Tom Brady, but uh, it is difficult to find a single figure that, right. uh, that serves that role. And Lincoln, I think, is an example. Right. And he's the third name or third face and profile on the, uh, the, the wall, the mountain, Mount Rushmore. Do you know who the fourth is? Teddy Roosevelt and Thomas Jefferson are the others, yeah. There you go. And we talked about Jefferson before. So the party that Jefferson created with Madison, uh, you referred to it earlier as the Democrat-Republican Party. Yep. Some called it the Republican Party. Uh, but it was the, you know, the, uh, the counterpoise or the reaction. It was the opposition to the Federalist Party. And Washington yep. was generally understood as a Federalist. Yep. So yep. here's more information, which is not in the in the Washington's Farrell Address, but it's referred to in the musical also, by the way. So Washington, during the years that he wanted to retire, and remember, he kept like the grand, like the godfather getting pulled out of retirement. So he retired <laughs> after the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, and there's a famous, we don't talk about it today, but we could, at a later time we could talk about his circular letter that he sent out to all the state governors and all the legislatures, giving his wisdom and his ideas after the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, so that was 1783. He goes back to Mount Rushmore, into quasi-retirement. Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon. Uh, I'm sorry? Mount Vernon. Thank you, Mount yes. Vernon. Thank you. So uh, he retires to Mount Vernon, and he used the imagery of uh, retiring under a vig, under, I'm sorry, a vine and fig tree, and that's part of one of the songs in, in the Hamilton musical, his mm -hmm. vine and fig tree. And here I'm going to ask you another historical tri tri trivia question, which is actually biblical. So the question is, where does Washington get that phraseology that he routinely uses in his correspondence during this time period, vine and fig tree? Where does that come from? It must be from the Bible. But I don't know where. It's a, it's a hard one. I didn't know it either. But uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name. The prophet Micah. Okay, sure. It's most famous for his expression about taking swords and turning them, beating them into uh, plowshares. Right. And nations not taking up any longer sword against nation. So that's also in that same biblical passage, or near that same biblical passage from from Micah. So here you have Washington, who you know cited to some of this religious language because that was in his nature to use uh, you know religious imagery, and it was very common at that time to to invoke uh, you know religious metaphors, etc. Yeah, I thought actually I was going to guess that it was when back to some Roman general, like uh, Cincinnatus or somebody like that. But no, I, I stand corrected. Good. It's a biblical, it's a biblical faith. You know, because Washington was often compared with Cincinnatus, who was a, a Roman farmer who was asked to lead the, the Roman legions during a period of crisis, and he was made a dictator, and he acted as dictator and, until the danger passed, and then he went back to farming. And uh, so Washington was always kind of compared to Cincinnatus in Roman history. I could not agree more. And as a matter of fact, the historian who's one of my favorite contemporary historians, this is Ron Chernow, and also Joseph Ellis, uh, one of the two of them, refers to Washington as a combination of, of Moses and, um, and Cincinnatus. And right. there's another figure that they use, all rolled together into one, because he was such a dominating, yep. such a beloved figure in American history. And uh, what's my point? My point is that uh, Cincinnatus, you're right, was a temporary dictator. So right. Rome had established that procedure that they would give almost unlimited 
of power to one leader uh, in an emergency, and then at the end of the crisis, you would have to retire. So that was what. That's one of the reasons Washington didn't want to become president because right. he held himself out as being a Cincinnatus. He came and led the country during the eight-year Revolutionary War and retired in 1783. So he was initially resistant. Now, when you go to the Constitutional Convention, and we're talking about 1787 as the convention, and uh, finally the Constitution gets ratified, and he becomes the first president in 1789. But when he agrees to become president, it takes some convincing by Hamilton and Madison and others to get him to come out of retirement, because Cincinnati did not leave retirement. Once he retired, he retired. So Washington right. had to grapple with that. And uh, also, since he mentioned Cincinnati, Hamilton was involved with several of the leading officers in the colonial uh, revolutionary uh, army, so the Continental Army, who established the Order of the Cincinnati, uh, which was intended to recognize, and today a version of it is the daughters and the sons of the American Revolution. But uh, for Continental officers, it was a way for them to be united with one another, to Mm-hmm. remain politically active and to maintain those bonds that they shared over the eight years of the war. So that's the order of the Cincinnati. Yeah, I, I've also read that when George Washington refused to become a king or a dictator, uh, King George III in England said that, that that made him one of the most virtuous men he had ever known. That would not surprise me. Yeah. King George was not crazy yet, uh, and he knew that Washington had beat him, so... That was a high praise from the enemy. So, since you mentioned King George and going crazy, some of the songs, because King George is one of the characters in Hamilton, mm-hmm. we could talk about some of the music, but he has some of the more lighthearted moments in the Hamilton musical. And that reminds me, I wanted to point out to you that um, earlier Manny was referring to the love story of Hamilton, uh, which is a central component of the Hamilton musical. But but actually, uh, Lynn Manuel is using, he's the, you know, the writer and the producer of the show, yep. he's using artistic license because uh, I don't think there's any evidence that Hamilton originally fell in love with the older sister, which okay. is, um, there, there are several Schuyler sisters. Uh, so I, I think that the, the evidence that I've read, and I've gone through some of the papers, you know, he was in love with uh, Eliza, who was his wife, who was very loyal. Eliza, and here's a quote I want to give you, one of my favorite quotes. Uh, so um, so I, you know, she stood by him after that affair, the Maria Reynolds affair became public, and we can talk about how it became public. Um, you know, She stood by her man, and uh, she loved him, and uh, she lived 50 years after he died. And part of that time, she's spending spreading his legacy, building schools for orphans, because Hamilton was an orphan. But here's one of my favorite quotes about Eliza, who was his wife, and stayed with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, Hamilton was very loyal to Washington, and Hamilton did not advertise the fact that he wrote the farewell address with Washington. Mm-hmm. Here's the quote. Uh, let me read it correctly. Let's see. Shortly, this is a quote from Eliza or Elizabeth, Eliza, same person. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a memory that she had written. So it goes, shortly after the publication of the address, the farewell address, my husband and myself were walking in Broadway, which of course would have been New York, were Mm -hmm. walking in Broadway, where an old soldier accosted him with a request for him to purchase General Washington's farewell address, which he did and turned to me and said, that man does not know he has asked me to purchase my own work. Okay. (laughs) Good, good. A modest guy. A modest guy. So A, he purchased it, and B, he didn't admit that he had uh, he had co-written it. Good. We could use that uh, humility today. There you go. 
but let me give you some more uh, background about uh, some of the content that's in the farewell address. And earlier you're talking about, you know, America and uh, unity in America, and mm -hmm. there are times when hopefully we can come together as a country. But mm -hmm. let me give you some of Washington. And again, the ideas are Washington, but the draftsmanship, the penmanship is Hamilton. So let me read you a quote from the farewell address. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in common cause fought and triumphed together, and I won't keep reading it, but you know, he's trying to say we are one nation, we need to stay together as a nation. And uh, one of the other things, and you mentioned before that he spoke against entangling alliances, but one of the other main points of the farewell address uh, was he was not a big fan, and we could debate about this, of um, there were different words for it back then. They didn't call it uh, political parties. They called mm -hmm. it factions. Right. But uh, he wanted to see the government working together and cooperating rather than get, being at each other's throat, which was something that really got uh, you know agitated Washington because uh, you know he, he wanted to see, and again we could talk about this all day long, but he wanted to see more of a coherent national federal government. than we were beginning to see these political, as we said earlier, these political divisions or p political splits between the Democrat Republicans and the Federalists. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that people like Robert. E, uh, Robert E. Lee should have read some of Washington's uh, letters and exhortations because, you know, the Civil War was basically people picked their party, their their interests, their faction above the Union. And uh, Lincoln's uh, interest in it, the reason he pursued the Civil War was because he said he wanted to preserve the Union and really put the Union above uh, regional interests. And Lincoln was not an abolitionist. He certainly wasn't going. He wouldn't have gotten the Republican nomination. Seward was the abolitionist. So Lincoln wanted to preserve the Union, and people like Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, would destroy the Union if they couldn't have their way. They should have read you mentioned Washington. mentioned the word Union. I want to pick up on that word Union. So I'm going to quote now more from the... Washington's farewell address. So Washington wished, and now I'm going to quote, union and brotherly affection may be perpetual, that the Constitution, which is the work of your hands, may be sacredly maintained. So Washington was all about union. Yep. Well, that's good. But let me give you some other historians and what they've said. So one of the Alexander, one of the early historians who focused on Alexander Hamilton, in fact, he wrote a biography of Hamilton, was Henry Cabot Lodge. And mm -hmm. you may have recognized a lot of the listeners that name, Henry Cabot Lodge, for a whole host of reasons. So here's one of his quotes after reading through and putting together the Washington biography and Hamilton biographies. I, I misspoke, not the Washington, but the Hamilton biography. So what does Henry Cabot, Cabot Lodge say? He says that the thoughts and the general ideas of the farewell address are all Washington's. The form, the arrangement, and the method of argument are Hamilton's. Yep. Now, was Henry Cabot Lodge uh, Richard Nixon's VP candidate in 1960? So that may be a different uh, Lodge. Okay. This is an older Henry Cabot Lodge. Okay, that could be. And that family, by the way, may have uh, multiple. It wouldn't surprise me if there are multiple lodges, but this is the historian Henry Cabot Lodge. Oh, okay. He was also a senator. He was from Boston, right? I'm not positive, but you might be right, but yeah. it surprise me. Okay. Let, let me talk with you briefly about, we talked about the biblical imagery, we talked about uh, Washington's popularity. Um, let me talk with you about how he starts off the, for the farewell address. And remember, this was Madison who wrote the, the first version of it. Right. So you know, if you're a speechwriter, 
And could you imagine today having these brilliant minds writing your speeches, yep. Hamilton and Madison? So how does Madison started off with the first draft? So we know Washington's going to be stepping down. Do you leave that revelation for the end of the address, or do you put it in the beginning of the farewell address that you're going to be stepping down? I don't know. I think this gets, by the way, to Washington's character. So right up front, front and center, at the beginning of the farewell address, or let's call it the open letter, which became the farewell address, mm -hmm. he begins by saying, and let me get some of these quotes correctly, uh, he goes, begins by saying that, um, let's see if I can find where I had it, but the, the, the gist of it is that uh, you know, right up front, he points out that uh, you know these are the, this is going to be the wisdom. I'm stepping down at the end of the term. That I am going to be retiring. And he goes on to say that uh, because I'm now retiring, and remember this was addressed to the people of the United States, friends and fellow citizens. So once he sets it up, he goes on to say that uh, now that I'm going to be retiring, I'm not going to have any political agendas. So I can give you my true unvarnished advice, my brotherly love and affection. You mm -hmm. know of what I want to see, what I've learned, what the wisdom is, uh, so people can look at it for what it's worth. It's, you know, it's a not political speech. It's his true, you know, honest assessment of where he wants to see the country go as the, you know, as the figurehead and the father of our country. Well, I think we certainly are blessed to have had leadership like that at that time. And, you know, one of the one of the concerns about calling a convention of states to consider amendments of the Constitution is that people say, well, we don't have people like that anymore. Uh, well, you know, what could happen? It could be a runaway convention. Uh, you know, the, the, the level of discourse and the education and so on is, is, is not the same. So we really, America as a nation, is blessed to have had a founding generation like that of men and women. So Let me pull out more of Washington's character, and I invite the listeners, you know, it's a 7,000-page address, so there's, uh, there's a lot you can look at and sink your teeth into. But here's another example of, I think, Washington's character. So remember, it started with the Madison Address, and then uh, he tells Hamilton in February of 1796 that he's going to be retiring. Hamilton asks him to send the original draft. What Hamilton does is he, and this is an interesting way of Hamilton, the way he views the world, he took the original draft and he made a very detailed outline. And Hamilton, I forgot what he called it, but it was basically an outline of principal points. Okay. Hamilton digests the farewell address so he can understand what's in it and make sure he's able to work with it. But, um, you know, and he does two things. He gives Washington a reworked draft using the original Madison draft, and then he rewrites it. So he gives Washington, you know, an updated version of Madison's draft and the brand-new Hamilton draft, and Washington gets to choose between the two. And ultimately, you want to take a guess at what Washington decides? Does he use the Madison version or the Hamilton version? Oh, I think he went mostly with uh, Hamilton. Um, could have given him a black-line copy, right, showing all the changes. Exactly right. So Washington is Hamilton is very thorough, and he's you know, transparent about what he's doing. So he you know writes in the margins the changes on the Madison draft, yep. and then he does his own draft. And uh, Washington prefers the Hamilton draft, and okay. he doesn't just take that draft as written. Over that summer, they work together and they make changes, they clean it up, they shorten it. But one of the things relating to Washington's character is that. Um, Here's, uh, I'll try to paraphrase it without quoting, but uh, he compliments Hamilton for removing, this is his words, Washington's words, removing the egotism from the draft and making it more dignified. Because Washington, in some of his versions, Washington was sort of bemoaning the fact that, uh, you know, uh, 
during this time period, which is getting, beginning to get very bitter. And we could talk about Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine is an example of a Democrat-Republican who was very supportive of Jefferson. And uh, we all know Thomas Paine is, in fact, Thomas Paine is mentioned in the Hamilton musical. Right? Uh, Thomas Paine wrote the, the pamphlet Common Sense, which mm-hmm. gave the reasons why we shouldn't be following King George, and it didn't make any sense because we weren't getting representation. But uh, Thomas Paine turns on Washington, and Thomas Paine writes some uh, very painful and uh, incisive and uh, you know, very sharp criticisms of Washington, which he takes to heart, and uh, he doesn't like to admit it. But the, in, in some of the drafts that go back and forth with Hamilton and Washington, you know, Hamilton is uh, winds up taking out some of this dispiriting language because Washington is talking about how his hair is gray, and uh, you know that it's, it's hard for him to, uh, you know, to, the way he's stepping down, he's not happy about it. But the Hamilton cleans it up, and that's the, what I wanted to express. That you know, Hamilton takes out the egotism that's according to Washington, and he makes it more dignified, and that's important. That Washington is the first president. Hamilton had his back. He wanted it to be a dignified address, right. so he took out some of the emotion or the bitterness that Washington had because there were many people that were beginning to criticize Washington over Jay's tree. And I think if we talked at another night about uh, why was there so much criticism and why was it getting so heated in this time frame, 1795, 1796. But to give a, a quick overview of why it was getting so bitter, remember, who supported us during the Revolutionary War? Which country? It was France. Our ally. France. France. So Jefferson was the ambassador to which country? Yeah, France. He's a Francophile. He's definitely a Francophile. There are good things and bad things. And that was one of the sources of disagreement, because Jefferson thought we were obligated to, in fact, we had a treaty with France. And here's another question for you. Um, There was a reason that Hamilton gave, and Washington would always ask advice. He used his cabinet to get alternate views. He did have, you know, let's be frank about it, he had... uh, as we said before, some of the best, brightest minds, but he welcomed, and he did this as a general during the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. He would get his, his officers together and have them submit proposals. He wanted to hear unvarnished, and he didn't criticize them. You know, He wanted to hear people came up through the ranks, and uh, if they had good advice, and they, if it worked, then he followed it, and he promoted them. So here the point is that Jefferson's view was that we had to be loyal to France, because France supported us during the Revolutionary War, and I think we could probably agree that we would not have won the Revolutionary War, or at least it would have been a lot longer. Yep. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, yep. the Revolutionary yep. War. We owe a big debt to Lafayette, who's also a character in the yep. Hamilton musical. So we owed a lot of uh, money and uh, and uh, lives and blood to France, who supported us. Yes. And you had the French Revolution. So when Washington asks, should we have neutrality? Should we support France? Uh, or should we support Britain? Uh, or should we stay out of it? What was Hamilton's position, and how, how did Hamilton explain that, no, we should stay out of it? What was Hamilton's explanation, or what was his justification for why we should not follow the treaty that we had signed, which was a treaty of amity and commerce with France? So here's the question. How did Hamilton advise, and what was the reason Hamilton gave Washington uh, for why we should not support France by going to war with England uh, during, the, during this period where France and England start fighting? Well, I don't, I don't know, but my guess is that it was a different government that we had signed the treaty with. We had signed By the, the way, treaty. I'm, I'm compl- 
complimenting you again that you're all over it. And it, it makes a lot of sense because Hamilton's point was, hey, we saw we signed a treaty with Louis the right. Sixteenth, if the, I'm not mistaken. The monarchy. But, uh, and this is pointed out again in the musical. Um, Louis Sixteenth's head is in the basket. So <laughs> the country that we signed the treaty with is no longer the uh, no longer ruled by the people who we had that alliance with. And uh, that, that's part of the cabinet battle. There's a famous scene in the musical, uh, and these are rap battles. And I think I heard Manny say earlier that um, you know this is the first time that he appreciated some yep. uh, certain rap songs. But that's part of, and there's so many compliments I could give to the musical. But uh, you've got. Let's talk about the musical real quickly. So you have songs which are rap songs. One of them is uh, is a rap battle. If you can imagine a cabinet battle or a cabinet discussions framed as uh, rap battles, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating. I think it's attracting all kinds of uh, new generations of kids to the government and to American history. But you also have songs, and we mentioned the King George character. Uh, so here I'm trying to paint the image for you. The King George character um, and Hamilton... Uh, when I say Hamilton, Lynn Lin Manuel, who plays Hamilton, um, was a Broadway kid, so he had done musicals growing up through his life and was very familiar with uh, with Broadway and Broadway conventions and Broadway history. So he's able to infuse in the Hamilton musical uh, references and lines from Gilbert and Sullivan, and uh, you know uh, he also uses Eminem and he uses uh, the Beatles and. There's imagery and there's melodies that you can connect back to British pop invasion. So when you go see Hamilton, it is true. There are going to be rap songs. There are going to be uh, British pop songs and melodies. In fact, the the song, which is the first song with King George, uh, instead of having a piano, so here's another question. uh, What was the equivalent instrument in the 1790s to a piano? And very few people would know the answer to this, but it starts with an H. Harpsichord. There you go. So the the harpsichord is used in the Hamilton musical. You get to hear a harpsichord mm-hmm. with a, and here's the difference between the, you know, the way that a rap song has a very fierce and a very quick staccato with uh, with rhymes. Uh, on the other hand, the the songs that are sung by King George have a totally different melody. So it's done with, as I said, the British sort of invasion pop Beatles melody, Eleanor Rigby, for example, as opposed to an Eminem or um, I forgot some of the the, the rap artists mm-hmm. who've, who've, uh, you know, who are who are you know, given uh, given their kudos by by Lin Manuel. But um, and again, I could talk about the musical all day long. But we're here to talk today about the farewell address. But my final point about the musical is that uh, I've, I've read interviews with uh, musicians from all different genres, R and B musicians and rap musicians and contemporary classical musicians, and they all say that you can't just listen to the songs once because there are so many layers and, and meanings and um, and uh, you know, additional strata or however you want to describe it. But there's so many layers of meaning in these songs that uh, you have to listen mm-hmm. to it several times to begin to understand what Lin Manuel has put into this masterpiece. Well. As uh, my wife and I went to the chamber orchestra Saturday night at the Knight Center down here, and we're looking forward to going again next month, so we're more of the chamber orchestra types than the rap music types, but still, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to check out this uh, Hamilton musical. Uh, I'm telling you, there is chamber music with the King George song okay. in the musical, so it covers all different uh, genres. All right. So my daughters, and I want to talk about the farewell address, but my daughters, who turned me on to the musical, mm-hmm. this was uh, several years ago when they were learning it in school. So this is an example, again, of the teachers in the school system using a musical to instill appreciation for American history. So they, they envisioned themselves, and maybe they're listening, about being the Skyler sisters. They would walk around the house 
singing an R&B song. So we mentioned there are rap songs. There are R&B songs okay. uh, with the Skyler Sisters. In fact, many people, that's their favorite song. It's called the Skyler Sisters, and uh, it's a tripartite harmony song where the three sisters are singing in intricate, very complicated harmonies with uh, Burr in the background. And that's a song, some people refer to it as a love song about New York because the song takes place in New York because mm -hmm. that's where... You know, Boston, we talked about earlier, was the, the situs of the Sons of Liberty and the Boston Tea Party. But the Sons of Liberty also had uh, a lot of active involvement in New York. And that's where Hamilton started off in King's College at the yep. time. So King's College is where he's going to school. And here's the next trivia question for you. Isn't that isn't College King, is no longer called King's College. Columbia University. Right. But they keep the crown right. of King's College. So it still has the vestiges of being King's College. Yep. But uh, you know, this song, this scene, is the three Schuyler sisters coming into the city on a carriage. And one of these days, I'll talk with, you, with everybody about the Carriage Act, which is one of my favorite laws, which Hamilton actually defends in the U.S. Supreme Court in that case. We could talk about it. It's posted on, and it's discussed in a lot of detail on the Statutes and Stories website, the Carriage Act. But they come into the city uh, to gawk and to listen to the speeches, you know, people standing on the soapboxes and uh, the ferment, the revolutionary ferment. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's the background of where that song happens. And they describe New York as the greatest city in the world as part of that rap song. I'm sorry, part of that R&B song. So, so what else can we talk about for the uh, farewell address? Well, you were talking about Hamilton. I was remembering back when I was in high school, there was a uh, popular play called 1776, which I think was made into a movie, and that was very good for the Declaration of Independence. I graduated from high school in 1974, so that was a big thing. So it's good to see that Hamilton... I don't think there's been any other play or, or movie that's been uh, focused on the revolutionary period. But I wanted to ask something about the Jay's Treaty and the, the whole treaty relationship. You know, USA signed with the Kingdom of France... And now we had a French Republic, but we were a republic. So why weren't we more friendly to the French Republic than we had been to the kingdom? And in any event, the kingdom had an interest in helping the United States be formed because we split off a very substantial colony, thereby weakening Great Britain. So France and Spain had an interest in helping American independence. But here we signed with the kingdom of France the kingdom turns into a republic, and we're a republic, so shouldn't we even be friendlier? And you are proving to me that you are a hardcore conservative, because Jefferson, if we want to consider him as one of the founders, and it's not the modern Republican Party, because the modern Republican Party is Lincoln, right. but the Democrat Republican Party of 1800 was, Jefferson was the leader of that party, who was the first member of that party to be elected. We mm -hmm. talk about Adams was the second president, he was a Federalist, yep. so Jefferson is the first, quote, Democrat, Democrat Republican right. uh, president. So Jefferson, that was his view. His view was that uh, because they are a Republican, after the French Revolution, they were a republic, and we were a republic. He thought right. that we were aligned. And Hamilton's position is, look at what's happening with that right. republic in yeah. France, because you had the reign of terror. Right. You had, um, no. we could do a whole separate conversation about the, the reign of terror in France. But they, uh, and that's one of the big differences, and we should be fortunate that the American Revolution did not lead to the kind of bloodshed that you saw in France. Right. So their republic got out of hand, and uh, their republic had all kinds of problems that had to be uh, worked out, and that led to Napoleon, and that's a whole separate conversation, and became a very militaristic republic right. that invaded the rest of Europe, and there are reasons about uh, why we could agree or disagree with what Napoleon wanted to accomplish. And I think Napoleon, in many ways, started off as a republic, call him a Republican, but a Democrat, meaning he wanted to open up society well. more broadly. Um, the 
there was a lot of chaos that resulted in France. And yep. Washington and Hamilton's position is let's let the dust settle in France before we start picking a horse. Right. Now, I agree with that. I think the the French Republic uh, was became very different from the American Republic, and uh, we've still seen. Uh, What's going on? The French Republic hasn't settled down. This is the fifth republic, and they've had two empires as well. Napoleon was a military dictator. I don't think he had any desire to democratize France. He wanted to make more places for his brothers as kings in uh, Europe, not not for democracy. So I got to go with uh, staying out of it on this, on the French Republic. Even though France was a republic, it showed the excesses of republican government, that America happily avoided. And I think maybe that's one of the concluding observations we can make, and we can go into the economics. So politically, we may have been aligned, at least initially, with France in 1796. But uh, economically, we were, we were much aligned with Britain. And yeah. Hamilton was very interested in paying off the debt, getting the house back in order so we could pay revolutionary war pensions, which he thought was an obligation we owed to the soldiers. Yep. He wanted to get the currency stable. He wanted to build up this new federal government so it would work. And he didn't want to take the chance of um, getting caught in the middle. And we were trading with Britain. Britain was our, you know, we were the, I won't call us the descendants, but that's where our, our allegiance economically was. So he wanted to, uh, you know, stay, keep it quiet. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, was the trade, uh, I'm back, by the way, and uh, was the trade, um, was it a lucrative trade, an expensive trade, was it a robust trade, even after we had just fought each other? Uh, why did Britain pardon us? Because they needed our raw materials, or what is it, why was there so much dependency on Britain, considering they were an enemy of the state? Well, they needed a lot of our raw materials. So it was raw material issue. I want to add them down. You're putting your finger on an excellent point, and there's an economic historian, Beard, and uh, he spent a lot of time going through and looking at the trading records and the tariffs, because that's how you're able to measure the trade, the tariff receipts. And as it turns out, uh, because those were our natural, remember, as you said, we were a colony of Britain, that's who we traded with. And at this time frame, the, the economic model was called mercantilism, and how does mercantilism work? The reason you had colonies is so you can trade with your colonies, and you're not supposed to manufacture goods in your own country. The colonies are supposed to buy manufactured goods from the motherland. Uh, they're only supposed to provide, as one of you said, the, the raw materials. So, you know, that's who the merchants knew. That's who they traded with. And uh, getting back to Hamilton now, after Hamilton put in place his economic system uh, and he created the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard is now enforcing the tariffs for the first time, and it's trying to encourage, uh, you know, the economic growth and prosperity. Uh, and we can talk about this another yeah. night, but yeah. uh, they're able to track the... You know, the, the economic growth, and that uh, you had tremendous prosperity under Hamilton and Washington, and uh, that's another conversation for another day. Yeah, and remember, okay. the Coast Guard used to be part of the Department of the Treasury. They had uh, their ships were called revenue cutters. Wow! So they collected uh, the most of the taxes for the federal government Out before before the income tax. And we should, we should return to that. Well, there you go. Well, right, thank well, you very we much, Adam. Going. We're gonna we're gonna cut out. It's been another exciting moment. You're here listening to Statues and Stories on Blink Radio, WSQF ninety four point five. Monday nights at seven at seven p.m. Right? Monday nights at five to seven p.m. No, is no, our concrete conservative, yeah. and then from seven to eight, we always get you, Adam, for thirty more minutes, which is pretty cool. You see how we snickered you there? That's you know one attorney to another. You can get you guys going. Let me, one final shout-out. Okay. This coming week is Alexander Hamilton's birthday. 
So I think it's January 11th, and my friends at the AHA Society are gearing up for the celebrations. And I'm going to point out to you that uh, one of the events that they do this, one of the locations is the Grange. And we can talk about what is the Hamilton Grange up at 143rd Street, I think. But uh, there are all kinds of festivities, and I encourage people, if you have a chance, go to the Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society, and they do events for his birthday and also during the summer when he passed away. But it's a wonderful organization, and they're all about teaching American history and appreciating the legacy of Alexander Hamilton. Well, put it on I, the website. Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, send me uh, send me uh, an email so I can put it on the website because I definitely would like to attend something like that. Considering this is the year of Hamilton since I went to this play, I really was moved. So yeah, it's time. It's a pleasure talking to you. I will send you the information, or just Google Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society, and their president, his name is Rand Cholet, and uh, you know he's leading the, the all the events that take place in the next week or two. In fact, they, they do events in, in Nevis, where Hamilton was born. Yes. So it's now a national internet. Sorry, it's an international organization, but um, it's all about teaching people to appreciate American history, which I think we can all agree we have an amazing history that needs to be appreciated. Absolutely. So stay free, my friends. Take care, Adam. Happy New Year to you. We'll be back next Monday. Gentlemen, it's time for ACDC. We're back in the black since we're talking about the Department of Treasury. Yep. One day, one day, one day. Take care, Ed. This is a fantastic three hours.